Hospital workers and frontline medical staff protesting the privatization of hospital services in Ontario. Why you should vote for Bill 60. Bill 60 is going to make sure that these protections are in place for patients. Hi, my name is Alyssa Krapko and I'm an economics student at U of T, but I'm originally from Alberta. And it's been interesting to be here in Ontario, especially with the private public health care mix, because there's some things here that I'm totally used to being covered under Alberta's public health care that are just not covered here. For example, some forms of private treatment, private nursing care in Alberta hospitals, those are things that are actually covered by public health care and my, my Alberta health care insurance. But when I come here and I try and get those same things, those same services in Ontario hospitals on the times that I've had to go into walk-ins or emergency rooms in the past couple of years that I've been here, I've not had that same experience and it's had to come billed to my Alberta insurance. Hi, my name's Rowan. I am a recent uh, transplant to Newfoundland. My experiences in Newfoundland so far with their healthcare system has been that it's very overburdened as well, especially emergency rooms. But here there's no, there's not even a discussion about privatizing healthcare as far as I'm aware. I, I can't justify living, uh, living in Ontario, seeing the direction that it's going. Um, there's going to be a lot of unnecessary pain and suffering and poverty and death. While the cost of everything just keeps going up, Speaker, why is this government opening the door to new fees and charges on people who are just looking to get the medical care that they deserve? Privatization does seem like a very appealing uh, policy. We're very behind, especially from the pandemic, in terms of uh, surgeries and medical imaging and diagnostic testing. I mean, you've seen it with Doug Ford and how he's introducing a lot of private health care, but you know, there's a lot of corruption behind the scenes. And that is why he decided to privatize health care in, uh, in Ontario, purely, purely for personal profit. It's really interesting to me that a province that I perceive to be so public and, and so inclusive in its health care is actually in some ways less so, or at least in the ways that I've needed it to be, is, is less so inclusive than Alberta. So it would contribute a little bit to people who have access and it would contribute a little bit to our economy. But overall, if we don't add in safeguards, which Canada isn't really known for doing. I'm curious to see how Bill 60 is going to set, set the stage for the further privatization of healthcare services. Um, and I'm terrified to see how that's going to impact uh, anybody uh, of marginalized identities. Change the transition. We're continuing with billions of dollars in new investments, and we're making health care more uh, open to the people of the province of Ontario, giving them more opportunity to have care closer to home. That's what we're doing. We're building a health care system that will work for Canadians and Ontarians today and well into the future. Okay, let's backtrack a little bit. Healthcare privatization in Canada is both a relevant and divisive issue. Naturally, as a country that offers publicly funded healthcare, Canadians often have strong opinions about how this issue should be handled. But that being said, do we really know what it means to have private healthcare? Can we as Ontarians make informed opinions about issues like Bill 60, which expands the private delivery of healthcare in Ontario? To answer these questions, we asked the pros about how Canada's healthcare system works and how Bill 60 would affect it. Before we begin, we would like to acknowledge that Toronto was founded on the traditional territory of many Indigenous nations, including the Mississaugas of the Credit, the Anishinaabe, the Chippewa, the Haudenosaunee, and the Huron-Wendat. 
We would also like to acknowledge the long history of science and medicine as tools of oppression against Indigenous peoples and the barriers to healthcare that are still experienced by Indigenous people in Canada today. I'm Angela, and this is episode 121 of Raw Talk Podcast. Before we delve into Bill 60 and the specifics surrounding that topic, let's first get a broad overview of what private and public healthcare really means. So we asked our first guest, Dr. Sarah Allen, who's a specialist in international health systems and policy, to give us a broad overview of how health systems are funded and provisioned internationally. I'm Sarah Allen. I'm an associate professor of health policy at the Institute of Health Policy Management and Evaluation within the Dalana School of Public Health at the University of Toronto. And I'm also the director of a research center that's based here called the North American Observatory on Health Systems and Policies. So the main thing that we were hoping you could help us with is just understanding what different types of healthcare systems there are, where Canada falls in, like, it seems like there is some kind of a spectrum between publicly delivered and privately delivered healthcare. So can you explain what those things mean and maybe like where Canada is within that? Sure. Within the health system types, we usually look to how the health system is is financed first. So we uh, in Canada, we rely on taxes to finance the health system. And there are other systems that use a sort of tax-based approach, and most notably the United Kingdom and their the national health services within England, Scotland, Wales, and Northern Ireland all follow a sort of tax-based system as well. Um, and then others like Australia and New Zealand um, also rely on taxes. So that's one way of grouping systems and another way of financing the health system that isn't through tax, general taxes, is through social insurance. And so those would be countries like Germany, the Netherlands, that they don't rely on general taxes to finance their health system. They rely on contributions from workers, uh, sort of like a payroll tax, and it's tied to your uh, employment and it's, it contributes to funding the, the cost of health care for employees. So it's a different model. And then there's the sort of the outlier is the private model where the United States is kind of the only example where we rely mostly on private insurance to finance healthcare. So those are the sort of groupings that we often see in the health systems literature. In addition to how healthcare is financed, how that care is delivered is another aspect to consider. Dr. Allen gives us an overview of this now. But it sounds like you're also asking me about provision. So who are the main providers? Because there's also not only when we think about public-private, we think about the ways we pay for healthcare, so taxes versus private insurance, which I talked about, but also who are the people delivering healthcare and are they publicly owned? Are they sort of public servants who are working for the government or are they private practitioners um, or are they you know, for-profit corporations? So that's where we see a spectrum on the delivery side. And we don't see as much a sort of neat categorization of health systems on that spectrum because there's a lot of heterogeneity within the system. So you can think about the public-private mix on two dimensions. The first dimension is who's paying. And we have like the 
government as the sort of main public payer where we pay taxes and then the government sort of purchases things on our collective behalf. Or you have a private pay option, which could be out of our own pockets. We pay for things like dental care, where you really used to paying for dental care um, privately out of our pockets or through private insurance. And those are the two main private mechanisms of finance that are used to various degrees across health systems. In Canada, we have generally the sort of tax-based publicly financed system alongside a mostly private delivery system where private practitioners are, you know, self, they're self-employed uh, doctors running their own practices, or in Ontario, we have private not-for-profit hospitals who govern, you know, governed by a board of uh, directors who are funded through the government, but they're really private entities. And that's similar to places like Australia as well, where doctors are private practitioners, independent, contracting with the government. Uh, and that's in contrast to the United Kingdom, where these are really public providers. They're uh, the, the doctors who work in hospitals are salaried employees and they are government employees. There's a spectrum, again, on the delivery side. And in Canada, the way we use private finance is quite unusual compared to other countries because it's very sector based. We have a very narrow universal health system. And by narrow, I mean, we're only really ensuring universal access to physician and hospital services. And then everything outside of that narrow basket of services is paid for and through a mix of public and private mechanisms, whether it's through our own pocket, out of pockets, costs, is whether it's through private insurance or through public subsidies. That's how our healthcare system has historically been organized. But what are some current issues? Dr. Allen gives us an overview of the aspects of public health care that have been scrutinized more recently. What's often debated is whether the um, that core, narrowly defined universal basket of services in Canada, which is almost exclusively publicly financed, publicly funded through taxes, whether we should allow for a bit more of a private finance option there. So should we allow for people to be able to pay out of pocket or to pay through for private insurance for those, you know, medically necessary hospital and physician services that we um, up until now have have maintained a almost exclusive public finance over. And then other debates are around the delivery side. Who owns these um, provider organizations? Is it for-profit corporations, or are they not-for-profit? I think what we're often debate in Canada is not, you know, whether physicians should remain as private practitioners independently contracting and running their own businesses, but rather, what is the role for the for-profit and the corporate sector within the health system? When we talk about healthcare privatization, it can be kind of a scary term to people. Like, what are, in your opinion, some of the primary concerns and criticisms that are raised by people who oppose the move to healthcare privatization? And how valid do you think those concerns are? Yeah, that's a it's a really good question, because uh, it depends on which aspect of privatization we're talking about. Because I think if we're thinking about on the financing side, allowing people to pay out of pocket or pay through private insurance to access their physicians, whether virtually or in person, um, then this does raise questions around um, the, you know, equity in access to care. Many people will not be able to afford it. So the, um, you know, the people who will be availing themselves of these uh, paid services 
that will be wealthier and you know this could further exacerbate inequities in the system but if everyone's able to access primary care in our universal system and you know then people can who who want to access it in a different way and if they can afford to then this might not have an impact on on equity as long as everyone can access the care they need in some way through the universal system. And we know that that's not really the case right now, as many people are this unattached patient. They don't have a regular place for their primary care, uh, or they're waiting a long time. Uh, they can't get the care they need. And so we're not, we, we can't really convincingly say that, yeah, we're providing universal access to care for the, for the population. So we do have this legislative framework that all the provinces are you know, they do follow, there's a, a financial penalty for not following them. So again, it's not, um, it's not clear how any move to privatizing in terms of the finance side could really go ahead without um, foregoing the financial, the funding transfers that come from the federal government. I highly doubt any province would go that way. Um, so yeah, I'm curious to see what happens on this virtual care side where people are paying for physician care, which technically is violating the Canon Health Act. The COVID-19 pandemic saw a lasting surge in virtual care, with about one-third of all patient visits being virtual in 2021, and half of Canadians reporting being offered virtual care in 2022, according to the Canadian Institutes of Health Research. Many provinces are continuing to fund virtual care in partnership with companies such as TELUS Health and Maple. We asked Dr. Allen about what partnerships with these for-profit corporations could mean for public health care in Canada. Yeah, and I think most virtual care providers are are in the sort of primary care space. So like a primary care walk-in clinic that we used to associate just with, you know, an in-person clinic is now both an in-person clinic, but also this online option. So, you know, the the companies providing these services are jurisdiction specific. So you would have uh, clients or patients from the same jurisdiction where physicians or nurses are licensed to practice. Um, and then, you know, that raises challenges when you move across to another province and you want to maintain your virtual doctor, but which you technically should be able to, but they might not provide that service to you uh, once you've moved. So during the pandemic, there were, um, at least in Ontario, the services provided by some of these companies were funded through the Ontario insurance plan. And so then the the question is what happens to those companies that are only operating online? Well, they're charging people for the the cost of those services because they're no longer funded through our health card through the you know provincially funded health insurance program. But then that raises questions around you know, whether that violates the rules of our, you know, the Canada Health Act. And some have fully embraced the publicly funded virtual care services provided by these corporations and others have moved away from it, um, but they're here to stay. How sustainable do you think Ontario's healthcare system is? I think sustainability is a really broad kind of concept because it means so many different things. On the one hand, do we have the resources is to be able to continue to pay our workers to you know make up the bulk of health expenditures and people are we continue going to be able to continue to pay for the rising cost of health care um, without having to raise our taxes by a lot um, so we've been able to do that 
<laughs> pretty well. We're a top spender. Um, so I think in terms of being able to generate the resources to pay for healthcare, I think it's fairly sustainable. Political sustainability is another question. Like, will people continue to support the system? Um, and will they continue to, you know, support all this significant tax expense, you know, tax revenues going to the health system when they see the quality deteriorating, they see that the wait times are lengthening. Um, so that public support for the for this single payer system could be uh, less sustainable than um, than even we you know than being able to pay for it. So that's where we get into these debates around people wanting to opt out or try and beat the queue because they're losing support. And so this underscores, in my view, the importance of you know, improving what we have, like we can do better and we need to make improvements to the health system to better support the workforce that we have to better link up people with primary care doctors to make sure they have the support they need in the community to, you know, ensure our hospitals are well resourced so they're not, um, you know, having shortages of, of staff and they're not uh, having to close EDs and so on and that we can make meaningful improvements on, on health equity and, and reducing health inequalities, all of that will help to strengthen the health system, which then makes for a potentially more sustainable system in terms of public support in the long run. One motivation that's commonly cited for the funding of for-profit clinics is a backlog of surgeries in the wake of the pandemic. Dr. Allen shed some light on this topic and the extent to which such clinics could solve it. There's a perception and there's evidence of a surgical backlog that has been uh, addressed to some extent, um, but there's always been a, a longstanding challenge with wait times generally, and then that was exacerbated during the pandemic. So one of the motivations seems to be uh, increasing in the activity, the amount the, of surgeries we can perform could increase if we increase the number of providers of those um, surgeries, for example. And so increasing the funding that goes to those centers could help address uh, the, you know, the, this imbalance between demand and supply. And so will it make a difference? Well, it depends on a few things. One is uh, it depends on the availability of the workforce. So in the short term, the workforce is fairly fixed. We have a supply of workers that can't easily be changed. It takes a long time to train a nurse and to train a doctor. And we're trying to expedite licenses for foreign trained workers. You know, if we fund more surgeries in these standalone centers, then you know, where will the workers come from? It could be that over time we reduce the threshold for what the um, benchmark is for for needing surgery. If we can do more, then we will do more and we might not make a dent. Are there any specific things that you think need to be done to improve what we have and avoid those issues? There's, there's so many things we can do. Um, and, you know, some of them are... Uh, things that we've been hearing about for decades, like around strengthening care in the community. We know people want to get care in convenient places. We know that people want to avoid going into a hospital. This is not an efficient place to go for low acuity, kind of low complexity issues. 
And yet many Canadians are forced to go to emergency rooms because they're not getting adequate supports in the community. So ramping up home care, ramping up community support, like agencies that provide a lot of the supports for older people, for anyone experiencing functional impairments. Um, these are inadequately resourced in Canada, uh, as well as primary care. Like the idea of, you know, of everyone having some kind of access to primary care is we're we're still quite a long ways from from achieving that. We've known the importance of a strong primary care system since the 70s and the WHO, you know, Alma Ata declaration, which was you know signaling global support for this concept of primary health care, and and yet we've made very little progress toward supporting the primary care workforce in a way that you know that adequately addresses the care and needs of people in the community. And this is not going to be possible with solo sort of standalone physician um, practices or even physician group practices that don't have, you know, team members to help manage all the complex health and social needs of their populations served. Uh, so, you know, we know the importance of team-based care, the importance of linking up primary and community care in more integrated ways. And, and so those are the things that I think are have been known as the priority and we need to make more meaningful improvements towards those goals and, and need the support from the physicians and the nurses and other providers in, in making this big change because it's really without, without them, it wouldn't be possible. Having learned more about the healthcare structures in Ontario and the rest of Canada, we wanted to dive deeper into more recent legislation and its consequences. We spoke to our next guest, Dr. Raza, specifically because he's an expert in healthcare policy and has written several articles about Bill 60 and its implications. My name is Daniel Raza. I'm a family doctor at St. Michael's Hospital, um, assistant professor in the Department of Family and Community medicine uh, here at the University of Toronto, and I'm also the past board chair of Canadian Doctors for Medicare. There's lots of different ways to describe healthcare in Canada. I think one thing that most people would agree on is that we don't have a single healthcare system. Instead, we have uh, at least 13 different healthcare systems, uh, one in every province um, and territory to begin with. And um, these healthcare systems are typically operated in partnership with the federal government. Uh, one uh, other uh, way that our healthcare system is described is uh, as a universal healthcare system, or as you know, most people will colloquially uh, say Medicare. But really, our healthcare system is only universal for two things, and that's hospital and physician care, and that's codified in the Canada Health Act. For other services, things like prescription drugs, physiotherapy, uh, psychology, long-term care. Uh, all of these other things that are really important, especially for chronic disease management, they fall outside of uh, Medicare, outside of the Canada Health Act. And really, to the extent that public health care, public funding does exist, it's not universal. It varies province by province. And I think it's a pretty uh, fair statement to say that outside of doctors and hospitals, we have a U.S. style healthcare system across the country. In your opinion, how is access to healthcare in Canada equitable? So, for example, what groups of people are covered um, provincially at the current state of our Ontario healthcare? There is no perfect healthcare system anywhere on the planet. 
there are challenges uh, that are that exist to every healthcare system. Some of which are are in common, and some of which are are, are unique. So, for example, one of the things that is common across high-income countries is the um, the increased demand that's being put on everyone who works in healthcare and all of our systems as we're exiting the emergency phase of the pandemic and we're essentially trying to catch up on a lot of care that was deferred. Another common demand uh, across health systems is just the rising expense of, uh, of medical technology and of delivering uh, medical care. Many, many countries are struggling with this. And of course, uh, other high-income countries are also um, dealing with aging populations uh, where there is a higher burden of chronic disease. And we're all trying to figure out how to continue to provide high quality care to um, to all of these folks. Uh, there are also, of course, unique challenges within every healthcare system. Um, I think one of the ones that characterizes ours is we're the only uh, high income high income country with a universal healthcare system that does not include a universal drug plan, which is why we're seeing so much debate and conversation around um, around pharmacare. Um, and uh, I think another thing that distinguishes us is we're a large country. We have many different health systems, as I mentioned earlier. Healthcare is a partnership between the federal and provincial governments. And so there's a lot of moving pieces as well. Now that we've discussed how the current healthcare system is organized, Dr. Raza will discuss Bill 60, also known as the Your Health Act, which has been the subject of a lot of debate recently as it expands the private delivery of care in Ontario. We will then discuss the implications of this bill and healthcare privatization in general. Could you describe what Bill 60 is and how is that going to alter the balance of care between public and private healthcare delivery in Ontario? Bill 60 was a piece of legislation that was passed by the um, Ontario government this past spring, and it contained a number of um, changes or legislative changes. And I think the most controversial one uh, related to the um, the intention of the government to take public dollars uh, and then direct them towards community-based clinics, which is actually not a bad idea. That's actually a very good idea. But the part that gets a bit sticky um, is uh, is the direction of those dollars towards clinics that are operated on a for-profit basis, which is a significant departure from the way that, um, for example, surgeries um, or, or diagnostic imaging is offered um, in hospitals. And I think many people would characterize this as a form of creeping privatization. Now that we're on the topic of privatization, in what way is healthcare becoming more privatized? When we think about privatization, it typically will operate on two domains, financing or delivery. And in fact, in Ontario hospitals, the vast majority of hospitals are private, but not for profit institutions, right? They happen to be as, uh, predominantly funded by the government through public funds, but they're operated as private, not-for-profit entities. They have their own uh, board of directors that are responsible, responsible for governance and, um, you know, and other kind of uh, related matters, uh, but they're private, not-for-profit. When we talk about privatization with respect to healthcare delivery, I think really what we're talking about is the rise of for-profit um, delivery. And I think most concerningly for-profit investor-owned delivery, where it's not necessarily, you know, a group of doctors, uh, you know, who are operating a um, an x-ray center in a strip mall, 
um, although that there's also potentially issues there. I think people are most concerned with, you know, publicly traded or large private companies with, you know, large market capitalization that are coming in to start to deliver medically necessary care. And I think that's what many people are concerned may happen with Bill 60. What are the underlying reasons for the motivation to push healthcare in the more privatized direction? Would it be reduced wait times? And then will those changes affect Ontarians at the pharmacy or at the doctor's office and hospital? Like, how will that affect them at that level? So I think it's first really important to acknowledge that the status quo, it's not working. I'm a family doctor. Um, and uh, I work in a community that is one of the lowest income communities in the city, although uh, I serve patients uh, from all sorts of different social and e economic circumstances. And everyone is struggling with access to certain types of care, in particular to elective care, where wait times are longer than they should be. I don't think you'll find anyone uh, who will argue with that that we need to do better. The question is, how do we do better, right? And there's lots of different choices in front of us. One of the choices that this government has made is uh, to invest more in, in for-profit care. And that's not a choice that's been made in a vacuum. In fact, we have evidence to inform uh, what the potential consequences uh, could be. So, for example, the, the NHS, the National Health Service in England, they've engaged for a number of years in outsourcing. So, in other words, taking public dollars and outsourcing uh, care delivery to private for-profit corporations. There was a, a team at Oxford that published in The Lancet not too long ago that looked at, a, uh, that looked at data from, I believe it was 2013 to 2020, and found that actually uh, amenable mortality that was due to outsourcing went up. So they found more people in England actually died as a result of this outsourcing. We also have really high quality meta-analyses that have compared not-for-profit versus for-profit hospitals in the United States that have been done by a research group at McMaster that have found that outcomes are worse in for-profit hospitals, better in not-for-profit ones. We can just look to recent history in Canada and even closer to home in Ontario to see uh, what happened during the um, really the scariest times of uh, COVID-19 when uh, older adults were absolutely devastated in long-term care. And we saw that mortality rates in COVID outbreaks were highest in long-term care homes that were for-profit, particularly ones that were part of chains. So we actually know the consequences uh, of going this route. With the uh, Bill 60, what do you think are the potential economic consequences of this bill? And then also the implications of the rules, like the as of right rules that allow healthcare workers from other provinces and territories to practice in Ontario? And so I think in general, it's actually good to uh, break down some of the jurisdictional barriers that we have that prevent different types of healthcare workers moving from uh, province to province. I think that's actually a good thing. It's a good thing to have a nice national licensure for doctors, and it's a good thing to have it, to, for it to be easier for nurses to go from province to province, because it will allow a bit more of an equitable distribution of healthcare workers across the country. 
of course, not perfectly. Uh, there are lots of other factors that um, that come into play, but I think that's actually probably a good thing. Uh, in terms of the economic consequences, I think ultimately what we're going to see is that if we double down on for-profit care, uh, we'll see what the, the you know what the experience of other countries have borne out. We'll end up paying higher costs for lower value care. Now that the privatization of healthcare is more of a reality or moving in that direction, what policies do you think need to be in place in order to support the equitable implementation of these systems? You have healthcare uh, that's operated on a for-profit basis. There's an incentive to, you know, obviously maximize revenue and reduce expenses. And in doing so, you're going to want to take care of patients who are the easiest or cheapest to take care of. So what does that mean? It means you, you don't want people who are medically complex, right? Because people who are healthier are easier to push through, um, push through your, your clinic. Uh, you want people who speak English, uh, so you don't have to spend extra time with uh, translators. And you want people who already are set up with OHIP cards who don't have third-party insurance or, may, or maybe who even who are uninsured. So if the starting question is, how do you deliver high quality care that is it is that is also equitable that is based on medical need and not ability to pay and that to the extent possible doesn't marginalize people uh, with you know quote unquote social risk factors then if you accept for-profit care it's going to be exponentially harder to deliver that sort of care so in my view we shouldn't accept for-profit care as a you know fait accompli and then try and throw a bunch of band-aids around it because you know frankly the the amount of administrative work and costs and um, extra layers uh, of enforcement that would we would be required to just simulate you know the outcomes or the care standard and not-for-profit care it's just it just doesn't make it doesn't make sense. I think if we're interested in delivering high quality, equitable care, uh, and that is our starting point, then we look at the evidence and the evidence says that we need to deliver publicly funded care that's delivered on a not-for-profit basis. Now that we've discussed what Bill 60 entails and how it might impact Canadians, Dr. Raza will now discuss ways to improve healthcare in Canada as well as alternative ways to improve access to care without relying on privatization. I think it's instructive to take a step back and just look at a brief history of our healthcare system. When Medicare came to be, it was in the late 60s, initially in Saskatchewan, and then the rest of the country in the early 70s. It was decades ago when the, you know, the distribution and the burden of disease fell mostly on acute diseases, things like heart attacks or broken bones. So that when people got sick, they needed a doctor or they needed to be seen in, in hospitals. But now, you know, we're decades on since it's 2023, and we have a much higher burden of chronic diseases, right? Things like cancers, diabetes, hypertension. Uh, people are living longer. And we actually need more than just doctors or hospitals to keep us healthy. But we haven't seen any significant expansion of Medicare since its inception. What we have now was always viewed as the first phase of Medicare. That's removing financial barriers for doctors and hospitals. And the second phase was supposed to be much more expansive and focused more on preventative and community-based services. 
And uh, I think that's one of the reasons um, why we're seeing such an aggressive push for pharmacare, but also why we need to see our healthcare system more robustly deal with uh, services uh, focused around uh, mental health, around home care to keep older Canadians independent and safe and healthy at home, uh, to expand services for things like uh, for dental care and so many other things that are focused on chronic disease management, but also, as you said, preventative health. So in an ideal world, what would be covered? You know, we live in a world of, uh, of limited resources, but even within our limited resources, we can be doing a lot more. If you look at how much Canada spends on uh, publicly funded healthcare, we spend about 70% of every healthcare dollar publicly. And I think what surprises many people is when you look at our peer countries, places like the United Kingdom, uh, Sweden, Germany, France, they all spend not just a little bit more, but in some cases, substantially more, 80% or more publicly. So internationally, if you compare ourselves to many European countries, we actually spend more privately and less publicly, and we cover fewer things, only doctors and hospitals. So forget about you know, the ideal world. Let's just catch up with some of, some of the countries that we often compare ourselves to. Let's cover prescription drugs. Let's cover more dental care. We're politically closer to those than we have been in a long time, but we're still, we still don't have a universal uh, system for prescription drug coverage. Uh, let's figure out smarter, better uh, ways to uh, deliver high quality care to older adults and let's, let's fund that care. There's so many things we can do. I think what we really need more than ever is some political courage to do that. Some of that will come from our political leaders, but you know, often, you know, there are exceptions, but often uh, many of our leaders will not lead, but they follow, and they'll follow public opinion and public pressure here. So I think there's responsibility for all of us who care about this about this issue to say something about it. I know you touched on this a little bit, but what would your, in your opinion, be alternative ways that we can address some of the issues in our system, like uh, huge wait times for surgeries and things like that? And how can we like, what are alternate ways that we can improve access to care without relying on privatization? Let me just uh, speak to three areas. So I'm going to speak to surgical wait times. I'll speak to uh, primary care uh, and then uh, prescription drugs. So for surgical wait times, we've already spoken about some of the challenges that can arise if we take public dollars and direct them towards for-profit care, right? The international evidence tells us that outcomes will be worse, it will likely be more expensive, uh, and it will be a drain on our already limited um, human resources away from the, from the not-for-profit system towards for-profit care. It will ultimately enrich shareholders more than it will patients and, and people in Ontario. But there are alternatives. So some of the alternatives include things like uh, reorganizing how we deliver uh, deliver services, even something as basic as referrals. So a common experience people may have when they go to their family doctor and they need a referral for a specialist is, is they'll get referred to one particular specialist or one particular hospital, uh, which can be a bit frustrating because maybe that specialist isn't the specialist who has the shortest wait time. 
And the reason that happens is because family doctors like me, we don't have any, you know, we don't have a dashboard, an online dashboard that shows us in real time what the wait lists are across, uh, you know, different specialists working in the same area. What many services have begun to do, not all, but some, is institute these centralized systems where, let's say, I have a patient who needs to see uh, an orthopedic surgeon for knee replacement. I will just refer to the centralized intake, and then they will refer the patient to the person with the shortest wait list. Or if the patient wants to see a particular surgeon, then they can wait for that person. But this is not happening across services, and it's certainly not happening um, for all for each and every uh, service in each and every region. So we need to see a substantial expansion of these sorts of in initiatives. Uh, you can also invest in team-based care where you have the sort of advanced practice physiotherapist that I mentioned earlier working with, you know, I keep on talking about orthopedic surgery as my example, but that sort of team-based care can apply for all sorts of different specialty um, services. And it needs to be delivered on a not-for-profit basis if we want the highest level of outcomes. So that's one example on what we can do on surgical wait lists. Primary care is another ex example where the system is in bad shape, right? We have millions of, of people in Ontario and across the country who don't have access to, to a family doctor or, or a nurse practitioner. And in fact, this problem is going to get worse before it gets better because we have uh, family doctors retiring or leaving comprehensive family medicine at a greater rate than we have new grads who are choosing to practice. One of the reasons is because we don't really support team-based care for primary care in a way that we should. It's way too complicated now in 2023 to be a family doctor in the same way that you could be a family doctor in the 60s and 70s or the 80s, where you could open up your office with maybe a secretary and and possibly a nurse. Now, because chronic there's more and more chronic disease, disease is, is much more complex, and we have so many more different treatment options, you really need a team. You know, re, you really need a team to deliver high quality care. And I'm one of the lucky ones who gets to work in one of those teams. I'm part of a family health team that includes not just nurses and physicians, but social workers, physiotherapists. Uh, we even have an income security program. Uh, and other programs that think about and focus on the social determinants of health. But only 20% of people in Ontario have access to a team like this. In some jurisdictions, we are. For example, in British Columbia, recently they launched a major expansion of team-based care, and they've had hundreds of new family doctors opt into the system. Uh, and you know, We're waiting to see exactly how many patients that will translate into uh, getting access to team-based primary care, but it's going to be in the tens of thousands, I suspect. And the third is prescription drugs. You know, I said it before, and I will say it ad nauseum, we are the only high-income country with a universal healthcare system that does not include a universal drug plan. And not only that, we pay amongst the highest drug costs in the world. Do you think that there are any misconceptions about the Canadian healthcare system that haven't already been addressed that you want to bring up? I think one of the major misconceptions is that public spending in this country is somehow out of control or we somehow spend way more than our peers internationally when that's simply not the case. 70% of, of healthcare spending in Canada is, is public, but in our peer countries, it's in, especially in Europe, it's 80% or higher. Uh, we leave so many things outside of uh, our, you know, 
our universal healthcare system. How does the government justify prioritizing saving money when our healthcare system lacks essential coverage of things like universal dental or physiotherapy? What factors contribute to the hesitation in allocating funds towards improving these healthcare services despite potential financial concerns or national debts? We should do the right thing, not because it's the cheapest thing to do, but because it's the right thing to do. There are circumstances where doing the right thing is also the most cost-effective or cheapest thing to do. For example, single-payer public pharmacare, it's one of these unique policy areas where not only will it give everyone in Canada access to medically necessary prescription drugs, but it will also cut costs. But frankly, even if it didn't cut costs, we should still do it, right? If we care about providing high-quality healthcare in Canada, especially at a time when we're spending less than our international peers, even if it's not the cheapest thing to do, we should still do it. We're framing costs about in terms of public dollars. It's not as if those costs aren't paid by someone. If someone can't afford care, they're paying for it with their health. Right? If they can't afford dental care, if they can't afford to see a dentist, they're going to end up in an emergency department. Right? receiving very expensive care. If they can't afford the prescription drugs they need to stay healthy for diabetes, their health is gonna, they're gonna pay for it with their health. And then eventually they're gonna end up, end up for an incredibly expensive and costly state and intensive care unit. So someone always pays. The question is who pays and how do we want to pay? And what's the most fair way to address this question? Is it to ask people to pay with their health? Right? Is it to downstream these costs until they become incredibly expensive? Or is it to actually take a step back and begin with the starting question, if we are truly interested in giving everyone in Canada the highest standard of health possible, how do we do it? How do we deliver it? How do we pay for it? And how do we get it done? We often compare our healthcare system to the United States with good reason, right? Because the American healthcare system is a warning. It's a warning to us about what could happen if we allow the marketization, the financialization, the privatization of healthcare in Canada to continue, whether it's private financing or for-profit delivery. But we should not use the US healthcare system as an excuse to accept the status quo when we know that we can do better and we know how we can do better. We have to hold ourselves up to a higher standard and not fall prey to this angel complex. I think the other myth that's really important to bust is that somehow the public healthcare system is this, um, you know, arthritic, slow-moving uh, system that is, uh, you know, not innovative or resistant to change. This is not a narrative that um, that private healthcare or the private sector owns. There are people working inside our public health system all the time who are innovating, who are creating really um, smart, sharp, patient-centered uh, programs that are improving care, reducing costs, uh, and, um, and making uh, local services uh, just frankly work better. But one of our limitations is that we're often seen you know, as a land of pilot projects. And we have a challenge scaling up these really innovative uh, ideas. And if we put some time and some resources to doing this, and I think we really can 
you know, realize the aspirations that many of us have for a universal healthcare system, one that's not just focused on acute disease, one that's not just focused on doctors and hospitals, but one that's inclusive of community-based care, that emphasizes preventative healthcare, uh, and one that treats everybody with uh, the dignity that they, des that they deserve to have. Thank you to our guests, Dr. Sarah Allen and Dr. Danielle Raza, for joining us on this episode to demystify this issue. And of course, thank you for listening. This episode was hosted by myself, Angela Matthews. Reina, Maddie, and Angela Matthews conducted the interviews. Reina, Angela De La Cruz, Angela Matthews, and Julia developed content. Reina was our audio engineer, Rada helped with promotions, and Maddie was our executive producer. Keep an eye out for an article written by Christian. Raw Talk Podcast is a student presentation of the Institute of Medical Science in the Faculty of Medicine at the University of Toronto. The opinions expressed on the show are not necessarily those of the IMS, the Faculty of Medicine, or the University. To learn more about the show, visit our website, rawtalkpodcast.com, and stay up to date by following us on Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, and Facebook at Raw Talk Podcast. Support the show by using the affiliate link on our website when you shop on Amazon. Also, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever else you listen to podcasts, and rate us five stars. Until next time, keep it raw.